Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and we're resuming normal service in English um, in terms of covering different topics. Um, and I apologize for a bit of a scratchy voice that I may have. I'm, I'm recovering from a bit of a cold. Uh, it's not COVID, thankfully. Um, today, we're going to be looking at um, global energy markets um, and get an expert view on where things are, where they're going, and how a country like Pakistan, which is an energy importer, ought to think about long-term energy security. So to talk about this, um, I have the honor of having with me Randy Bell. He's the Senior Director of the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. He also oversees the center's um, annual Atlantic Council Global Energy Forum in Abu Dhabi, which is just coming up after delay uh, due to the Omicron wave. Um, so that event is on track. And he also serves as co-director of the Council's Task Force on U.S. Nuclear Energy Leadership and is a Richard Morningstar Chair for Global Energy Security. So Randy is someone who understands global energy markets, um, has his eye on the ball, so to speak, in terms of where things are going. Um, and so, Randy, I'm excited. We're excited to have you here today to share with us what's going on in global energy markets and what the outlook is for both the near and the long term. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Um, it's uh, uh, really looking forward to this conversation. I want to thanks start so with. You know, thanks for joining, and I want to start with sort of where things are. You know, we we started the pandemic. Um, oil went in the negative for a hot second. Um, it was really cheap. There was debate in countries like Pakistan that buy everything that you can and store it because it's cheap and cheaper than it's ever been. Um, and then since then, there's been volatility in the markets. It's oil is hovering around $90 per barrel right now. And really, it's creating external sector stability risks for a country like Pakistan, which we'll get to in a bit. But first, help us understand what's really going on in the energy markets, particularly in oil and natural gas. Right. So what, what we've seen um, over the past year or so is just in, increasing prices uh, due to the recovery following the collapse of prices in March uh, and April of 2020, really during the peak of the global lockdown. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, oil went oil in the U.S. went negative uh, very briefly, which had never been seen before. And prices were really, really low levels. Um, and that and, and that frankly was uh, for oil for energy importing countries, a, a very good stimulus uh, allowed uh, perhaps balancing out some of the uh, negatives that you saw because of uh, because of lockdown. Um, of course, for the, the exporting countries, a less a less good situation. So we've seen as the economy has recovered and all the charts show, uh, you know, continued employment, et cetera, increasing demand. Now, uh, there are a lot of reasons why prices are higher now than they were before COVID, even though demand isn't quite as high um, and uh, or, or with natural gas, it may be about as high. Um, and and those reasons, there's disagreement about what those reasons are. But I think a couple that are worth considering um, the first and foremost um, supply is always slower uh, to to follow uh, changes uh, in demand, and so demand can change very quickly, as we saw in 2020, where demand just dropped off a cliff, very, uh, you know, within days. Uh, where and and supply 
uh, it took a long time for the supply to be to be reduced, and so that's why prices went went negative. Um, and on the flip side, we've seen uh, demand come back fairly quickly, um, not quite at the same level as it dropped, uh, but but still relatively quickly. And supply has a hard time keeping up. So even as OPEC plus uh, continues to put more barrels of oil on the market. Um, the producers themselves, uh, they have a four four hundred thousand uh, barrel per day increase uh, that happens regularly. Um, that's sort of part of their cap. Um, the producers themselves aren't able to keep up with that increase, uh, and so so you're seeing producers have a hard time coming online, uh, coming back online. Now there there are other things that are are driving the the current situation as well. Um, geopolitics, uh, particularly in Europe. Uh, which is distorting the natural gas market. So Russia uh, provides a lot of the natural gas in Europe. Um, they are they are meeting all their contractual obligations, but they're not providing additional volumes uh, to Europe when they normally would have and when they do do have those volumes uh, available. Um, and Fatih Birol, the head of the IEA, has uh, been very outspoken about this, um, that Russia is uh, distorting the market and denying gas to Europe. Um, at a time uh, during a cold, during the winter when it needs more gas, uh, when it actually didn't have as much going uh, much in storage as it needed to going into the winter because um, there was an unusually uh, an unusual summer where the wind didn't blow as much as was expected, uh, and so the wind turbines uh, that were expecting to provide power in August. Uh, did not provide enough power, and so you had needed to rely on ga natural gas that was in storage that they usually use over the winter. Um, so you have these these dynamics uh, all playing out all at once, um, and and then you just have a general commodity boom um, where people where it's not just oil and gas, but any any sort of molecule, um, and, uh, copper for instance. Uh, there's just demand uh, like like we've not seen before. Um, and and with supply chain bottlenecks, et cetera, you're, you're seeing just struggles getting uh, getting these uh, commodities to market. So you see really um, very, very high prices. Uh, again, as you said, oil above 90, natural gas, uh, particularly in Europe, but in other parts of the world as well, um, at highs that they've really not seen before. Uh, and that's going to cause significant problems for a place uh, like Pakistan that uh, is, a, is an importer uh, of commodities. Yeah, I think there was a period of time uh, earlier this winter or late last year, basically, uh, where cargoes for gas weren't being delivered, right? And they were basically turning around midway to go to Europe because they were bidding up the prices. And, and it was just crazy for a market like Pakistan because it was like, okay, damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you were in a catch-22 where you had to buy expensive gas. But even if you did that, it still wouldn't come to your shore. Um, and there was a lot of political pressure and, and that created some political instability or criticism for the government at that time. One thing I was reading, um, Randy, before starting this podcast with you, was the role of the United States around shale oil. And it was an interesting story, and I would love your thoughts on this, was that as prices go up, typically in the past, in the recent past, U.S. shale producers have stepped in and, and sort of expanded their production to sort of beat back prices. It hasn't happened yet. And one of the articles I was reading said, well, ESG, environment, social governance standards have made it difficult for oil producers to get access to the financing that they need to be able to then invest in supply, et cetera, et cetera. And that there has been supply destruction. How much of a role have things domestically in the U.S. played 
in terms of the global oil price boom, in terms of prices remaining high on the sticky, you know, being sticky on the higher end, um, and U.S. shale producers not stepping in to fill that additional demand. Yeah. So um, it's definitely true that shale shale is not producing um, at the same level as it was before uh, COVID. Uh, however, I, I do take issue with the argument that it's ESG that's causing that. Um, there, there, there's a world in the future where ESG can limit investment, but frankly, the limit in investment in oil and gas production right now is because um, oil and gas has been a terrible, terrible investment since 2014 or so. Uh, U.S. oil and gas. Uh, it's underperformed the market um, and U.S. oil and gas producers uh, have been um, uh, uh, sort of burning through cash uh, and, and in many ways are, have been seen by investors as being deeply irresponsible about the cash. So, so um, they're taking this opportunity um, to show financial discipline um, and to show that they uh, will be able to pay off debt, that they will uh, they will not just just throw money at continued production without um, actually paying paying off uh, some of their debts, paying investors, making a return. So that is really the driver of what's happening right now. Uh, now you do see uh, shale oil and gas starting to come back. Um, it is increasing. It's happening slower than might have happened in the past, but it is happening. Um, and the recent projections and uh, would will be that um, uh, probably not this year, but by next year, U.S. will be producing more oil than it had been pre-COVID. So, um, so they do think that this will that uh, the shale shale patch will come back. Um, it's just taking longer than perhaps it had in the past, simply because they do need to show this discipline. Thanks for clarifying that. I think like it was something that stood out to me as well. Like it. ESG can't have this big of an impact in the short term. Like it, it was a bit odd to me that that was the argument being made. So appreciate you clarifying that. One other thing that I was reading, and I would love your thoughts on where the global markets are, is that these prices are going to be on the higher end for the foreseeable future. Now, I don't want to give a prediction in terms of eight months, 10 months, 12 months, but generally speaking, analysts have been saying they're going to remain high. And one of the arguments they're making also is that as you said, inventories have been drawn down. And so as those inventories go up, the demand is already strong. And so it will take a while for everything to sort of settle down in turn, which then leads oil to come down in its prices. Where do you see this price action going? And I ask this because it's an important debate point in Pakistan because the central bank is arguing inflation is transitory, pretty much like the Fed here, and that oil prices, which have been the big driver of external sector instability, that they will ease and once they ease, everything else will be fine. And the government on the fiscal side is also betting on that by not passing through uh, the price action to the consumer, playing with petroleum taxes and sales taxes to absorb sort of the pain that otherwise would go to citizens. Again, hoping and praying that in the next three, four months, oil comes back down to 60, 70, $50 a barrel, and they'll be out of this situation. Where are things going and, and how do you see the price action sort of going forward? So um, there's no uh, bigger bigger risk than predicting the price of oil. Um, uh, so uh, you generally find if you go back historically that you see people predicting something and it happens for a while and then 
it switches and it's very hard to know why why that happened and uh and predict when that will happen um so i'll say that there that absolutely that most analysts do see us in the middle of uh, a super cycle um that we will be seeing high prices for a while um perhaps uh 80 as the floor maybe not quite as high though though any you know at this current moment any geopolitical uh vibrations could cause uh, could cause prices to go above 100 if if Russia were to invade Ukraine, for instance. If what we were seeing with the uh, the Houthis uh, Houthi attacks in the UAE, if those were to become more serious, um, you could see prices uh, in this sort of current moment uh, jump up very quickly above 100. Um, and there's there's other things that could could drive that in the short term as well. Now in the medium term. There are a number of things that could just as easily drive prices back down. Um, another another wave of COVID. Um, if there is another variant, um, though, though people are more and more tired of lockdowns, uh, a ser serious wave could do that uh, quickly. Um, you you also I I do think uh, we'll see shale coming back online. Um, but also the the question about Iran and if Iranian barrels uh, come back on the market in a serious way and and the the conversations about um, the JCPOA I think are are crucial to watch in this and could really put barrels back on the market uh, relatively quickly um, and that could be a big driver of uh, oil price decline um, so so I think it's really um, you know that in the short term yes prices are going to remain high but I I. Uh, I, I would want to be uh, cautious about calling uh, $120 or $140 oil or something like that. Um, there's there's just a lot of a lot of opportunity to, for the price to go down as well. Um, I, it's not something that I I, I don't have sophisticated uh, oil price models at my disposal, but um, but I do think that there are uh, you know th there's just as there's a, a good chance that all those predictions are wrong. Uh, I wouldn't bet. Uh, I wouldn't bet an entire economy that they're wrong, but it's also worth anticipating that they could be wrong. And, and to sort of help us understand what's going on in the long term in energy markets, right? there's a lot of talk about renewable energy debate around nuclear, whether it should be part of sustainable energy plans in, in the long term. Um, there's also this debate, I remember reading a foreign affairs essay on this a couple of months ago about how demand restriction in the oil markets actually is going to lead to a whole lot more volatility, including higher prices as the marginal cost of producing oil in particular goes up. Um, what's going on in the long term sort of climate change oriented energy market debate? And, and where do you see things headed in like, let's say, super long term? Again, not a prediction, but what are these trends that, that people need to be aware of? Yeah. So what you see uh, over the medium and long term is an increasing push on uh, decarbonization, on climate action, on uh, moving the energy system to net zero. There are a number of different ways of getting there, um, but the, the primary focus in a lot of the West is on renewable energy. Um, with different uh, and then other and then sort of subsectors of the West looking at nuclear, as you say, or fossils, fossil fuel with carbon capture or other other forms of clean power. Um, and uh, and and the other thing that I should emphasize is that the discussion is on electrification of, of many parts of the energy sector. Um, so using uh, electron more electrons and fewer molecules. Um, so 
So what does that mean for oil? Um, there, are, there are many predictions about a peak in oil demand uh, and, then, and then a decline over time. Um, the, and there are a number of different scenarios that um, depending on what, what policy actions and what consumer actions and technology develops, um, what, what that oil demand will look like. Um, the most aggressive, some of the most aggressive that I think still are realistic um, are, are the IEA's net zero scenario and BP's net zero scenario. And both predict that oil demand will be 24, 25 million barrels per day uh, by 2050. Um, and that's from about 100 million barrels a day right now. So sig significant decline in oil demand over the next uh, 25 or so years. Um, that's if the steps are taken to electrify transport, um, to move away from uh, from fossil fuels and, and oil um, being the main transportation fuel, a power fuel, it's less used less and less for in the power sector, but nonetheless, uh, really pushing away from oil demand. Uh, gas is a slightly different story because gas plays an important role in the power sector and is a lot cleaner than coal. So, so I think there's a, a more complicated future for gas and I think a lot more disagreement about where gas goes. Um, about whether what kind of role it has out to 2050. Um, it, it surely will have a role balancing renewables. The intermittency of renewables is a challenge, particularly as you deploy more and more on a grid. Um, and so it'll play, a, I think it will play some sort of a role um, out to 2050 in the power sector. Um, and, and that's important to watch uh, how other technologies manage um, intermittency in the power sector of storage, uh, long-term uh, power storage technology develops. Gas may have less of a role if that technology doesn't does not move quickly. Um, gas will probably have more of a role. Um, I think nuclear is very very important, um, and you will see ongoing discussions about that in Europe, in the United States, in much of the world, where um, nuclear can is very energy energy dense. Um, it doesn't use much land, which is really important. Renewables can use a lot of land, um, and so uh, you can you can use nuclear power um, in in many in many countries that don't have a lot of land um, or don't have a good renewable resource. Um, and it is a, a a firm, clean source of power um, that and next generation technologies. Uh, will probably allow it to nuclear to, to be in more countries than it isn't right now. Um, easier to use, smaller projects, um, more cost-effective projects. So nuclear is really interesting. Um, and then I think the, the thing that people talk a lot about is hydrogen. Um, and hydrogen can be produced many ways uh, and, and can have a, an important role in, uh, in the power sector, playing the role of gas, the gas does now balancing renewables, working as a long-term store, store of power, um, or uh, it can play a limited role in the transportation sector as well. So all of these trends are pointing towards a world which is um, more diverse in terms of its energy sources, cleaner in terms of its energy sources. Uh, I, I don't think we'll be getting rid of fossil fuels any, in, in, in our lifetimes, but uh, they'll probably play less of a role going, going forward. The question really is not, I, I think at this point, not so much about um, what, the, what the changes will be, but more on the pace of that change. So from 100 million barrels a day to 25 million, like that's a huge amount of demand disruption, right? And, and, yeah. and so one, I wanted to get your sense of like, do you then subscribe to the view that that fundamentally creates a lot more volatility in energy markets because, you know, companies will go under, countries will try to figure out their strategy. 
Um, a lot of things, technology will be hot one day, not so hot another in terms of confusion, in terms of potential, baseload capacity, all that stuff. So do you subscribe to that view that we're in it basically, if these scenarios were to come true or anywhere near coming true, um, that there will be a lot more volatility that countries, especially importing countries are to be prepared for from a macroeconomic perspective? Yeah, so um, there's there's no question. Well, no one ever said that um, just because oil demand is declining doesn't mean you don't still see commodity cycles. Um, and so, so there's still the question of commodity cycles, uh, but that that will it, it could be amplified because it's hard to know what to invest in when demand is still declining. Though there will be, it's not going to be a, a, a even uh, uh, and predictable decline. Um, and so, it, it seems more likely uh, that the those who will be producing will be either short cycle plays, so uh, shale oil, something that you can make your money back relatively quickly, um, or uh, oil plays from uh, from uh, NOCs, the uh, national oil companies that that can finance a lot of this on their balance sheets and not uh, and so um, it can manage some of that uh, that volatility where um, and where financial financial firms banks may may be little more wary of making investment um in in long-term oil, oil and gas um because of uh because they don't know what the future demand picture looks like so so um i do think that yes there's going to be volatility in um in oil and gas markets um there always has been um so it's something that countries need to be prepared for, but at the same time, um, the the long term trend will be lower prices. Um, so maybe perhaps more volatility, but also ultimately lower prices because the demand will be so much lower, um, and um, and as the the prices will need to stay low because um, because you will just higher prices will create more demand destruction. So um, so it's it's a, a a vicious cycle for some producers if they're not not thoughtful about this, but great for uh, ultimately great for importing countries if they can think through how to manage um, manage the volatility while recognizing prices are going down. Um, and also, um, there's a great opportunity for importing countries uh, because new technologies tend to be less volatile. So um, renewable power, while intermittent, um, is relatively predictable um, in terms of uh, of the the ability of its ability to produce power, um, so you sort of know what those costs are going to be and when it's going to produce. Um, there are there are variations to that, as we saw in Europe this summer. But uh, but in the end, it's relatively predictable, and the marginal cost is is um, is relative is is you know next to zero. So yeah, if I'm recalling my data correctly, like because of the issues in Europe this summer, um, I think they. Uh, burnt a lot more carbon than they would have otherwise, right? Because the renewal was out of the picture for a particular period of time and you had to use, crank up coal power plants and old dirty power plants that otherwise would not have been used for the baseload capacity. Um, yeah. You mentioned national oil companies, um, sort of, you know, sovereign countries being able to put things on their balance sheet. Um, and there have been rumors recently over the last few days that Aramco might be getting back into the equities market and then sort of diluting or selling some more shares. 
taking advantage of the higher prices right now. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the big oil producers and their strategies as they you know, ramp up preparation for a future world where demand destruction is going to happen? Um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, et cetera, Russia even, um, what are they beginning to do or invest their dollars in to sort of you know, plan for this new future? Right. So Saudi Arabia and UAE uh, are, are very good examples of a thoughtful approach to being an oil producer and, and in an energy transition. Um, Russia is more complicated, so I'll get to that um, uh, in a little bit. But UAE in particular, but Saudi is, is pushing very, very quickly as well. They're both, um, they both actually low cost and low carbon producers. So they see themselves as um, the 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 place where oil will be produced when it is not produced anywhere else because it's the lowest price and it is the lowest uh, lowest carbon um, per barrel and so in in a world in which there's 25 million barrels of oil demand today you could imagine a large chunk of that um, coming from Saudi Arabia and the UAE so they will they have a, a long term market um, and so so they they are preparing for that the price will be lower but they'll be prepared they will still be selling and they'll still be profitable what are they doing they are also investing in the technology of the future um so uh uae has been doing this for over a decade with Mazdar, the clean energy company so um serious um serious uh, solar investments uh, around the world, um, some of the lowest tariffs in the world in, in the UAE and Saudi, they're doing these incredible projects. Um, so they're investing a whole lot in future technologies. Now they're moving into hydrogen. Um, the UAE has done a lot on nuclear. Um, they've had they've uh, had a nuclear power plant come online. Two of the reactors are online now, they're of four. Um, so they're, they're, they're doing a whole lot on technologies of the future. Um, Saudi is doing the same. Um, they're not quite as far along, but they're moving very, very quickly. And they have some great opportunities, uh, again, with hydrogen, um, producing both green hydrogen from renewable power and uh, blue, so-called blue hydrogen um, from natural gas with carbon capture. Um, and, and so they can export that. And so they're creating um, the market for future energy as well. And so they'll, they will very likely be energy powerhouses going forward, just it will be a more diversified uh, set of, of energy resources that they can, can export. Um, and so I think that's really interesting for, for Saudi and the UAE. Now, Russia, um, it, they are a lower cost producer, not as low cost as, as Saudi and the UAE. Um, their, uh, their carbon intensity could, is, is not great um, because they have very leaky uh, methane, uh, methane issues. Um, across their gas infrastructure, but also from their oil production. And so that's something that they would need to address. Um, however, they are rel a rel in, in the scheme of things, they will still probably be producing. They are, they're starting to pay lip service to the energy transition. Um, they're not doing much in terms of investing in technologies of the future, but there is, um, again, lip, you know, before there's action, there's always talk. So let's see if that talk turns into action on some of the uh, clean energy technologies. They, they possibly could do that. Um, but they're they're I think less well positioned for the energy transition. But um, but it's not as bad as some other countries where uh, a decline in oil demand, uh, global decline in oil demand could could um, be deeply deeply destabilizing um, and and cause uh, governments to fall, um, region uh, you know, regional conflict, etc.
One thing that I, I mean, uh, maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, but it just came to my mind is sort of this obsession in Mexico under AMLO to sort of, you know, rekindle Pemex as, as the big sort of national giant that the treasure and, and sort of the, you know, the all important entity that's there. Um, he remains obsessed with sort of bringing that Pemex back into the global fold as a big major player. Um, would you place Mexico in terms of one of those countries that perhaps are not making the right choices moving forward and preparing for this? Or is it a bit more complicated in terms of where Mexico is? Well, John Kerry is in Mexico right now uh, making the case that they're making bad choices. Um, that's on, more on the electricity markets, uh, but they, uh, where they're, they're trying to keep um, uh, look, trying to let keep renewable power out and focus on uh, domestic uh, fossil uh, generation. But um, but in general, yes, uh, the the situation in Mexico is not great. Um, there's been a lot of international investment that is at risk um, and it, it's not a it's not seen as a good place to do business right now by by many of the companies. And I think that ultimately a, a country like Mexico really does need to have um, international engagement uh, in order to to manage its resources well um, uh, in the short term, at the very least, though so that capacity can always be built back up. It doesn't have it right now. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I've been sort of loosely following sort of Venezuela and Colombia, and you saw that transition where Venezuela sort of went down, you know, in terms of its capabilities, and a lot of the talent went to and expertise went to Colombia, and Mexico is trying to play some some of that type of game. And my fear, at least from a very outside outside perspective, not being an expert in the Latin American or Mexican markets, is that perhaps that's not the route that you want to go if you're Mexico either. Um, you, you mentioned that the transition that's ongoing in the new technologies that are coming on board are an opportunity for energy importing countries. And I, I subscribe to that view as well in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not only a transformational opportunity from a clean energy production point of view, but it's also a potential opportunity to leapfrog ahead, right? We're talking about microgrids and we're talking about battery technology and things like that, which in many places like South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, the grid hasn't expanded to every nook and cranny of the country, right? And it's expensive to expand that grid and there's losses and all sorts of issues. And perhaps the microgrid may solve a lot of those problems through renewable power. But from an overall strategic perspective, how would you advise policymakers in these energy importing countries that have had this history of, you know, poorly regulated electricity and energy markets where the government still plays a big role, where these things can bring down governments if, if the price goes really high or basically lead to a loss in the next electoral cycle. Um, how should they think about what's coming down the pipe and how to navigate a world in which there's going to be volatility on one end, but also significant opportunity on the other? So, you know, every country has its own um, set of issues and stakeholders that they need to manage. So um, if you think about the coal sector in India, um, that's a, a very different uh, different situation than if you're sitting in Bangladesh or in Pakistan. Um, so uh, and and so I think but in broad strokes, um, I think the advance of renewable power and the um, the relative, how, how incredibly inexpensive renewable power can be, particularly solar, 
um, is a great opportunity for countries in South Asia to really um, develop uh, a, a domestic supply uh, of electricity. Now, Bangladesh is is a is because it's very limited in terms of its land availability. A slightly different story, uh, but there's a great opportunity in Pakistan for sure, um, and and in India as well. In India, they're developing um, solar, they're developing wind. Um, so lots of lots of great opportunities um, in in Pakistan. As I and I'm I'm not uh, an, a country expert here, so uh, you're going to need to correct me if I'm wrong. But my my sense is that um, the bigger challenge is just getting the investment in place um, to build that out. Um, but once once those frameworks are developed, um, it's a great opportunity um, because of the resource availability uh, availability because of the frankly I mean, the huge need for for power um, in in the country um, now bangladesh has some of the largest uh i think per, i think it's the highest per capita um uh rooftop solar in the world um which is a, a totally different approach but also a, a fantastic opportunity there and that that could also work in certain parts of uh, of pakistan and india as well um and then um and then uh Pakistan also uh, has uh, any number of other opportunities to to develop. Um, you know, nuclear is something that's uh, always been a part of Pakistan's energy system and um, is is an important an important piece of maintaining uh, maintaining baseload. Um, of course, that that uh, that's complicated, but um, is something that uh, as we're moving forward, we need to be thinking about. Um, and uh, and we really want to make sure that. Uh, you know, power continues to be uh, to, uh, continues to be developed in a clean way. The other thing that Pakistan could could develop that I think is really interesting is hydrogen um, as as an alternative to natural gas playing a role in its power system, um, playing a role for long term storage. Um, and that's something that I think uh, there's a great opportunity as well uh, that should be that the, that the country should be looking at. Yeah, I think that the natural gas domestic production has been declining and, and exploration hasn't really sort of, you know, led to any new major discoveries. And that continues to be a problem because it's increased dependency on imported LNG. And because of the way the domestic market is structured is that you continue to, you know, they just recently started moving towards a weighted average cost of gas. Um, but the IMF says that collectively in the electricity and natural gas markets combined, um, the debt in the system is over 6% of GDP, right? And the problem has been that clearing that debt out um, is, is not going to be effective so long as the underlying issues that caused that debt to explode in the first place are not resolved. And that then prevents investment from coming or even when investment comes, it's linked to fixed ROEs and IRRs and it's dollar denominated. And even the Chinese who invested a lot have faced some problems in terms of getting their money back that they're owed and they've sort of you know tried to negotiate um a settlement out of that and and that remains a problem so i think that again links back to the unique you you mentioned unique political circumstances of different markets right that fundamental reforms have to happen in order right. to then catalyze the investments um in terms of sort of the most exciting technologies that are on the horizon. You have mentioned, um, you know, hydrogen, battery storage, we've talked a little bit about what excites you the most in terms of what's coming down the pipe and where, you know, maybe the technology is not there yet, but if we do have some sort of major innovation or some sort of ramp up in scale, um, that would fundamentally transform energy markets. 
Yeah. I mean, if, if for a fundamental transformation of energy markets, uh, fusion is, is always very exciting, uh, but it's something that people have been talking about for decades and it's always been a decade away, multiple decades away. It, there, continue, there have been a number of breakthroughs over the past couple of years that suggest that it is possible. Um, and so I really am keeping an eye on that as, um, as a technology that, that uh, could be a game changer uh, in terms of clean power um, that, that just is uh, entirely different than anything else we have. Um, and, and if that, if, if we're able to get commercially available fusion um, as, as companies in, in the US and Canada and the UK are claiming that we can, um, then, then that changes a lot. Now, the timeline for that is still a decade plus away for anything commercial. And so we have to be thinking about what we need to do now versus what happens in 2035 or 2040 or 2045. Um, and so we, and, and are problems that we can solve now that, um, that are important to solve when we can. And so I think that that's, that's just sort of thinking when you're thinking about technology, you need to be thinking about the timeline and what we can address with what we have right now. There's a lot that we can address right now. And so I think, even though I'm really excited about fusion, I'm really excited about hydrogen. Uh, I'm excited about a lot of the innovation that's going on in uh, bio-based fuels for aviation, for instance. Um, I still do want to get back to this key, uh, the, the key uh, opportunity in front of us, which is just basic renewable power, which 10 years ago wasn't was, you know, crazy talk that, you know, you could have uh, the, the scale of renewable deployment that we're seeing year on year. Um, and now it's the cheapest form of power available in much of the world. Um, and so getting that just continuing to push on that, I, I think, I think you need to be thinking long term, but you need to be acting short term. There, there are there are real opportunities to continue to deploy renewable power and battery storage is is coming along as well um it's not long duration but with uh, but it really helps manage the grid uh over sort of a four hour time time period which makes makes renewables an even more compelling case so um while i'm while i want to think about technology long term i really i can't emphasize enough how important it is to deploy as renewables as fast as we can right now yeah, I think one of the uh, in in the long term strategies that Pakistan has, they're expecting sixty percent of electricity makes coming from renewables, but a big chunk of that is coming from hydro with mega dams, right? And one of the arguments there has been that mega dam projects can be delayed by years, if not decades, because there are construction delays all the time. So perhaps a hedge for Pakistan would be to do exactly what you're recommending, which is invest in small scale renewable projects, solar and wind in particular, solar in particular on the rooftop side with populations that have not been connected or don't have consistent supply of power. And that in my view, at least also helps solve some of the circular debt problem in the market because it's rooftop solar. There is no grid that's being extended and no distribution company that's you know trying to collect that money from people who or businesses who perhaps may not want to pay that. So I think that that perhaps is a strategy that they ought to look at from a policy level as well. I'm mindful of time um, and I want to sort of conclude this sort of like conversation with you in terms of the risks that you're keeping an eye out on. You mentioned where things are with Russia and Ukraine. Um, you know, we have other sort of headwinds coming up in terms of is there a new variant coming up that may lead to lockdowns and again, a demand destruction that we saw in the early days of the pandemic. Um, what are you particularly concerned about or keeping your eyes out on, let's say, six months from now? Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, inflation, uh, a huge question. Um, so, you know, I do, I do think that some of it is transitory as, as, uh, because the, the supply chain bottlenecks from COVID will, will ultimately shake themselves out. Um, but, uh, some of it probably has to be dealt with through, uh, uh, through raising of interest rates and whatnot. Um, that will, that will change the energy market. Um, it will slow down growth, um, could drop prices. Um, and that's, you know, depending on where you sit, that's a good or a bad thing. Um, so inflation is definitely something to, to watch. Um, and then uh, I continue to watch the Middle East um, and I, I continue to watch any sort of geopolitical issues, whether that's, um, as we, as you talked about, Russia, Ukraine, but also China um, and Taiwan, also a major, major issue. So so those, I think, are are some of the biggest risks. And then we didn't talk about this, but cyber, which is uh, a huge risk for the energy system, um, is often tied to ge- broader geopolitical issues, but sometimes is just tied to criminal networks. Um, and a uh, major cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline stopped uh, the flow of gasoline uh, on the east coast of the United States for a couple of days this year, and um, and those types that that was ultimately um, a relatively minor attack in the scheme of what's possible. So, uh, so that's something that I'm paying a lot of attention to, and that, those risks only increase uh, as the world gets more, the energy system gets more digitalized. Um, whether that's the renewables, uh, where you have have to be connected through the internet um, to manage the variability or whatnot. Um, so uh, so that's something that I'm paying a lot of attention to. Those lines in the United States were quite something when, when the pipeline was shut down and it sort of, you know, rekindled again, I think in a weird way, they all sort of came together at the same time where those long lines were there. We were beginning to see the early signs of inflation, which has continued to this day. And people are beginning to sort of point to the 70s once more as that era of high inflation and energy sort of being top of mind for everyone. Um, and it's happening here in the US and in parts of the world like Pakistan. So um, again, Randy, thank you so much for taking out the time. This has been fascinating and appreciate you joining us today. Before I let you go, um, would love your recommendations on books people should pick up and read. They can be about the global energy markets or innovation in the energy markets, or they can be on any other topic that sort of books that you've enjoyed over time. Um. So first of all, I just need to point out, these are not my books behind me. These are my wife's books. It's her bookshelf, but it's a great backdrop. Um, uh, so um, uh, my my background is uh, um, uh, very, uh, I, I studied documentary filmmaking uh, in college. So I, I have a, a very unusual background coming to this. Um, and so I want to recommend, um, uh, Oh, I'm now blanking on the name of this book. Um, uh, uh, it's um, uh, the book. Uh, this is this is going to be very esoteric, but I'm using this opportunity. Um, the book about uh, the Russian filmmaker uh, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky called "Sculpting in Time" was very influential for me back in the day when I was uh, studying film um, on on energy. Uh, Dan Jurgen's newest book, um, "The New Map." is is absolutely worth reading um and then uh in the on the fiction side um uh i'm i'm reading jonathan franzen's new book right now but i can't recommend it yet but i really did uh love his book freedom um which i thought uh of the books of his that i've read was was really uh was i think my favorite so um so those are those are three totally totally different topics
No, those are interesting topics. I haven't read the first and the second one, but or any of them, but I read Dan Yergin's, uh The Prize and the Quest and the new map is on my list. And the quest is back there um, underneath that Batman that's there <laughs> behind me. Um, and it, it's a must read. So anybody who hasn't read Dan Yergin's books, they're must read. And you can start with the new map or the prize or the quest. And I think Netflix has a documentary on the, or a series on the quest as well. So it's a must read it for anyone trying to understand energy and global energy markets. Um, Randy, it's been wonderful having you uh, join us. Again, thank you so much for your time and have a great rest of the day and week. Um, and good luck with the Global Energy Forum. Fingers crossed that you know the, everything goes on track and that you guys and the team pull it off this time around. Yeah, March 28th and 29th uh, in UAE. So uh, we're really looking forward to it and looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.